You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. You ready for a Bible study? Yeah? You ready to hear from the Lord? Uh, let's, uh, let's open our hearts for that purpose. Uh, Lord, we worship you in song because you are worthy of all praise. Lord, we worship you with our hearts because you're worthy of all of our love and affection. And now, Lord, we want to worship you with our mind. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would illuminate our eyes, illuminate our ears, Lord, that we might see, that we might hear what you would speak to us from your word today. Lord, each of us in different phases of life, and yet you're able by your supernatural power to meet us all right where we are and to draw us into deeper waters. For Lord, we know it is your will, it is your desire to have our relationship with you grow even more than it is right now. And Lord, to that end, we present ourselves to you. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each and every one. And Lord, even the kids that I can hear in the distant, Lord, laughing and celebrating, Lord, may you speak to them as the Sunday school teachers teach their message. Lord, may your spirit do in your church what only you can do. Lead us to true and everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The ushers are in the Bibles. Uh, they look like bank robbers, but they're ushers. And uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. And... Uh, <laughs> And you'll enjoy the study if you have a Bible in your hand. And find your way to Luke chapter 1. We're beginning a brand new series called God's Christmas Grace. And for the next few weeks, we'll be looking at God's grace that is poured out in the Christmas season in a, a beautiful and profound way. God's Christmas Grace. We're looking at Luke chapter 1. If you're there, give me a big amen. Amen. <clears throat> Follow along with me, if you will. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Yeah, they saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They experienced Jesus. They walked with Jesus. Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first. That means the very first of Jesus' incarnation. The very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed, that you might know the certainty of those things of which you were instructed. Uh, interesting intro into the book of Luke and into the Christmas story. And he writes, and he writes to most excellent Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? Well, uh, could be a guy. Uh, 
The very fact that he says most excellent Theophilus causes some scholars to believe he was a Roman uh, official of some sort, most excellent Theophilus, and that's possible. Uh, Luke, who writes this book here, and also who wrote the book of Acts, starts the book of Acts the same way, most excellent Theophilus. And yet, we don't have uh, any information about Theophilus, and here's why. Because I believe it's not a man, but it's actually a message. And here's the message. Theophilus, two Greek words put together... Theos, which means God. We have theology, right? Which means the study of God. And phileo, which means love. And so theophileo, Theophilus, lover of God. This message to you, all who are lovers of God, most excellent lovers of God, this is a a message to you. And he writes to us, it tells us here in verse 1, to help us understand the things which have been fulfilled among us. Things which were fulfilled among us? What things? Well, a lot of things. 365 messianic prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ at his first coming, at his incarnation. 365 prophecies that are now fulfilled. From the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, at the beginning of time, prophecies about Jesus, to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, written 400 years before Jesus came, uh, from every page in between, 365 prophecies made about Jesus that have been fulfilled among us. This is a big deal. Luke is saying. These were specific things. Well, what kind of prophecies? Well, 365 of them. Things like he would be born of a virgin. Wow, that's pretty specific. Things like he would be a Jew. Things like he would be from the tribe of Judah. Things like he would be from Bethlehem, a small, homely little town, not what you would expect. Things like he would have a flight to Egypt because his life would be in danger. Uh, Things that are very specific and unique like that. Things like he would be of King David's lineage. Things like uh, that are obscure and and, uh, require diligent study. Like he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Things like he would be a rock, a foundation on which everything would be built. Things like he would be a prophet. Prophecies like he would be betrayed by a friend. That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Things like he would be beaten. Things like he would be pierced and crucified. Things like he would be killed on Passover day. Very specific prophesies, prophecies. Things like... Satan would strike his heel, but he would crush Satan's head. 365 prophecies, very big deal. Luke writes, I write these things to you, things which have been fulfilled among us, that you might be confident, that you might, uh, uh, you know, just know uh, Look what verse 4 says, that you might be of certainty 
of these things in which we were instructed. Um, how amazing. Luke, of course, a physician, a very bright and intelligent man, and he writes with just exquisite details about this life of Jesus. Luke would give more detail than any others. He would give the names of the leaders. He would give the names of the kings or the governors or, or the names of the cities and very detailed specifics. Uh, he would give the names of people involved. He would really paint the human drama of the situation. He really showed Jesus' humanity, what Jesus was feeling, what Jesus was going through. Uh, just an incredible writer, and he did it all that we may know of certainty of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension to the throne, that we might know of certainty these things. 365 Old Testament prophecies, all fulfilled by Jesus, one of them being that the Messiah would have a forerunner who went before him. And of course, we know that forerunner is who? John the Baptist. And here, Luke tells us the most unusual way that this prophecy was going to be fulfilled. This prophecy of this forerunner going before Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist, uh, interesting guy. And uh, uh, Luke begins to tell this, this most unusual way in which it's fulfilled. You say, well, what was the prophecy of the forerunner? Well, there was... Again, 365 prophecies about him. Uh, we're going to go through all 365 this morning. <laughs> That's a nervous laughter. Like, is he serious? <laughs> no, we're not. But one of them, this one of John the Baptist, here it is, Isaiah chapter 40, written 700 years before Jesus, by the way. Uh, let me hear you read this out loud with me. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Wow. Pretty amazing. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting. Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our, our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. Wow, interesting. The message, there's going to be a forerunner and he's going to go through and he has a job. His job, here's what it is. It's to make a straight highway through the wasteland, through the wilderness for who? For God. He's to prepare a road for God. Oh, this was crystal clear in the generation it was written to. When a king would come into a town, they would go weeks in advance and they would remove all the boulders, lift and remove all the trees that had fallen in the road. They would make the path straight so the king could come in in all his glory without his chariot getting tipped or anything else. The king could come in. They would prepare to receive the king. And God uses that imagery and says, hey, go back to the uh, first verse on this place. He says, comfort my people 
and speak tenderly to her. Tell her that her sins are pardoned and clear the way through the wilderness, not for a king, but for who? Who does it say? For the Lord, for God. And so that is the prophecy of this forerunner of the Messiah. It's not the only prophecy of the forerunner, but it is one. And uh, now we are going to see, Luke is going to tell us the unusual way in which God fulfilled this prophecy. Verse 5, are you there? There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. Uh, Herod, you know who he is. He is crazy Herod. He is brilliant Herod. Um, a masterful builder. Uh, uh, incredibly smart. Built the most amazing buildings and, and uh, accomplishments in, in Rome and in Jerusalem. It's that same crazy Herod who killed the babies and, and killed his own sons and all those kind of things. We'll look at that more of that in weeks to come. Uh, but in those days... Uh, uh, there was a priest named Zacharias. He's going to be a main character in our story, so let's familiar ourselves with him. Everybody say his name. Zacharias. Zacharias. Yeah, uh, he's a priest. He's serving in the temple. He's a priest of God. Uh, he's a priest named Zacharias, and he's of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. Uh, why he's telling us that she's of a daughter of Aaron and he's of the division of Abijah, he's simply saying this, both of them were Levites. That's significant because the, pre the priestly tribe was the tribe of Levi. If you were going to be a priest, you had to be in the tribe of Levi. So both of them are Levites. And their names, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're going to be who this kind of the, the characters in our story today. Very interesting, by the way, uh, Zacharias, his name means, you might want to write it down in your Bible right next to his name, Jehovah remembers, or Yahweh remembers. Elizabeth, her name means the oath of God. Put them together, Yahweh remembers the oath of God. Wow. Yahweh remembers the 365 prophecies, the 365 promises that he's made to his people. Yahweh remembers the oath of, the oath of God. How amazing is God? Think of his sovereignty. That Zacharias, a young teenage boy, red-blooded Jewish male, sees a beautiful woman says, wow, she's pretty. She sees him starry-eyed. Oh, he's strong. He's powerful. They fall in love. God's sovereign hand, bringing them together as one flesh to communicate a message to us. Yahweh remembers the oath of God. Wow. Wow. Just incredible. Uh, his sovereignty over all things. Verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. 
This doesn't mean sinless, but it means that they had a genuine walk with God. They understood his ways. They studied to know him, and their hearts were given to him. And when they sinned, they would repent. They would confess their sins. They would put their hands on, a, on an animal, on a lamb, and they would offer a sacrifice for their sins. And symbolically, their sins would be transferred onto the animal. That animal would then be killed in their place, and they would go free. A picture, a foreshadow of of what Jesus was going to do for us on the cross. Our sins put on him. Him taking the punishment of our sins and dying in our place and we going free. Oh, that's how they were blameless before God. Uh, they believed. And verse 7, uh, they were serving God, they're walking with God, but verse 7, but they had no child and they had no child for two reasons. Here's the first one. When Elizabeth was barren. Yeah, they tried for years and years and years and she cried big tears on her pillow and he tried to comfort her and oh, the heartbreak that comes for not being able to have a child when you want one and she would see all her friends get pregnant and they were just having tons of children and I don't understand and, and Elizabeth was barren. Second reason they had no child is and now they are both well advanced in years. Well advanced in years. She is menopausal. He is impotent. You say, Dave, how do you know that? It says, because it says they were both well advanced in years. And what that means is they weren't working anymore that way, right? Uh, they just, that, those days were gone. That ship has sailed. Uh, verse 8. A little nervous laughter in the audience. Uh, so it was. Let me just move on, please. So it was. While he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Uh, the priests of Levites, all the Levites, they were divided in 24 divisions. This goes all the way back to the times of David. David divided the priestly tribe into 24 divisions. Each of the 24 divisions would get a week when they would serve in the temple. They did it two weeks a year. And so you would serve, if you were a Levite, you would serve in the temple. You would serve in Jerusalem two weeks a year. You'd serve all week long. And then you'd also serve at the major feast, Passover, uh, Tabernacles, and... Um, Pentecost. So uh, uh, they would, uh, it was his division. It was his time, in other words. He was serving according, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Yeah, here's how that works. Here's what would happen. Uh, he would go in and, and pray. The altar of incense was uh, a place where the, the, only the priest could go into the altar. And he would light the incense and the incense would burn all day long. And he would do it twice a day. He'd go in in the morning and light the incense. And then at dusk, at sunset, he would go in and light the incense again. And that incense was a picture of what? Prayer. It's a picture of prayer. Why? Here's why. God loves when his people pray. God loves prayer. You may, not, you may not think much of it, but God loves it when you pray to him. 
When you bring your problems to him, when you bring your joys to him, when you say, Lord, I'm so thankful for my new day of life, and thank you, Lord, that I'm healthy today, and thank you, Lord, that I'm... just God loves it when his people pray, so much so that he asked the priest to do this twice a day. Uh, this was Mosaic law. The, uh, Zacharias here is fulfilling Mosaic law, what God set up through Moses uh, when they built the tabernacle, when they built the temple. Exodus chapter 30 is a verse for you that kind of explains this. Let's take a look at this. Let me hear you read. Uh, I love hearing you read loud and thundering, by the way. Um, so let's make sure it's so loud that Subway next door hears it. Uh, every morning... When Aaron maintains the lamps, he must burn fragrant incense on the altar. And each evening, when he lights the lamps, he must again burn incense in the Lord's presence. This must be done from generation to generation. Multiple times in the Bible, the Bible says that God, to God, the prayers of the people are a sweet fragrance to him. And so to show that imagery of how much God loves it, he had the illustration, he had the symbolism of incense being burning in the temple. The temple is what? A picture of the presence of God, the prayers of the people, the sweet smell of the prayers of God's people coming up morning and night before the Lord. God loves prayer. And how beautiful it is. We may not think very much of, of prayer, but to God it's a big deal. He loves it. He loves it when you just call upon Him. And I want you to know something. Not only does God love it when we pray, and every morning, by the way, uh, there's people praying for you. Uh, every morning, 8.30, they meet, they're praying for you. I prayed for you this morning. And, and God loves your prayer. Not only does God love your prayer, but God answers prayer. Look at verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's to Zacharias, standing on the right side of the altar of the incense. Do you notice the imagery there? What happens? An angel comes and he comes to the altar of prayer. Wow. We're going to learn this is Gabriel. God sends Gabriel, and where does he send him? To the right hand of the, the altar of incense of prayer. Very symbolic, very meaningful. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, Zacharias is flipped out. Look at verse 12. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear came upon him. Can you imagine? I mean, like you're standing there, you're praying. He's probably worse. like, oh, Lord, you're so good. I thank you for your grace, for your mercy. And he's just praying, and all of a sudden, this Shekinah glory, this brilliant radiance, and it's Gabriel standing in his presence. And he's like, wow, what the heck? Verse 13, look at this. Uh, and the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Wow, crazy, crazy. Uh, your prayer has been heard? What do you think Zacharias thought when the angel came and said, your prayer has been heard? I know what he thought. You know what he thought? What prayer? 
I mean, he's between 60 and 80 years old right now. When do you think the last time he prayed for a son was? They haven't had a good night in a few decades. I guarantee you, he hasn't been praying for a son. And yet, God says, Zacharias, I remember your prayers. And I'm going to answer your prayer. I want you to know something. It may not always happen in the timing you want it to happen, but there is not one single prayer that you haven't uttered that God hasn't heard. He stores them. He keeps them in a bottle. Your prayers are a sweet smelling fragrance to him and he comes years after uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth had ever even thought about praying for a son anymore and he says listen I'm going to answer your prayer now how powerful is that how amazing is that and God doesn't always answer things in the time we want in the way we want but all that doesn't mean he isn't sovereignly moving to the very best for you I've watched him do it in my life and even though I haven't understood it at the time I look back and I go oh Lord your way was better than my way thank you you want to know something God remembers the first time you prayed to him and not one prayer has fallen void in his eyes not one prayer that is done in his name uh, God answers prayer. And I want you to, I also want you to see something else here. Uh, here's a couple uh, that is doing everything right. They love the Lord. They're strong in the Word. They know God's Word. They know who God is. They're serving faithfully in the temple. They're serving God. They're serving God's people. They're serving others. They're giving their lives to serve. And yet, they're barren. They can't have kids. Something so important to them. Their life has problems. Problems they couldn't fix. Problems they couldn't fix their entire life. And can I just remind you of something? God's people have problems. Christians have problems. There is a false teaching out there that if you have problems, it's because you don't have enough. How did you know? You don't have enough faith? What a crock. What a lie. What a burden. What a wearisome religion. What a fraud. That is not your God. We have problems because we live in a problem world. I want you to know something. God does not reward believers with trouble-free lives and punish unbelievers with all kinds of problems. That's not the way it works. It doesn't work that way at all. As a matter of fact, God's grace is upon all people. God's grace is upon all people. The nice and the mean. The believers and even the atheists. God's grace is upon all people. This idea that God only blesses good people is pagan. It's a lie. It's often packaged in various forms. Uh, they all look something like karma. But it's a lie. It's not true. God's grace is on all people. The theological term for this is called common grace. 
common grace. It's a theological term. And it's a, it's a grace that is given to all people. Atheists, murderers, drug dealers, prostitutes, pimps, and everything in between. God's grace is upon all people. Jesus said it this way. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust. And the sun shines on the just and on the unjust. Uh, what is he saying? Uh, uh, sunshine shining on the just. On the, yeah, the, 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 the guy who's really selfless and kind and gentle, the sun shines on him in the morning. The guy who is selfish and beats people up and is just mean and wants to hurt someone, the sun shines on him in the morning. And the same is true with the rain. The, the, the good farmer gets a nice rain. The wicked, mean far, farmer gets a nice rain. Uh, it's common grace. And I am so thankful for God's common grace. Without God's common grace, I would have never known Him. God was gracious to me when I was an enemy. God was gracious to me when I was against him. God was gracious to me when I could care less about anything that was important to God. I just wanted to feed and, 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 and satisfy my fleshly desires. God was blessing my socks off during that time. It's common grace. And it's how God works. And all through the Bible, God has revealed this. Uh, Psalm 145, here's a verse for you on your screen. I could have chose a bunch, but here's one. Uh, let me hear you. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are on all His creation. Yeah, even Adolf Hitler, when he woke up in the morning and he went into Starbucks, had the love of Jesus behind the counter saying, Hey, Mr. Hitler, how are you today? Have a good day. You know what that is? That is God's grace. And it's on all people. Um, now, God does show special grace. Uh, the theological term is salvific grace to those who he chooses. To those who come into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. He shows special grace or even abundant grace. And very thankful for that. Uh, but even then, uh, even then, we do not obey God to earn His favor. Uh, we do not obey God to earn His favor. Do you know why? Because we already have His favor. I am a father of four. Uh, I have wonderful kids. I'm super thankful. Got to hear my son Ryan singing a song today on guitar and love it. Got to spend the, the uh, day yesterday with one of my other boys and going to spend the day today with the rest of my kids, a family dinner on Sundays. Love it. Love my kids. But you know what? They cannot earn my favor. And even when they are messing up, if they ever mess up, and when they're messing up, uh, they don't have to do anything to earn my favor. Why? Because they're my kids. And they can do the worst thing in the world and my favor is going to be upon them. I'm going to do everything I can to help them and to get them back on the right track. And if me being sinful knows how to give good gifts to my children, Jesus would say, how much more your heavenly Father who's holy knows how to give good gifts to you. His grace is upon you. And He is for you. Uh, he wants to bless you. Um, and when we obey God, uh, we don't obey God to earn His favor. We obey God because we love God. We obey God because we want to honor God. And when we do, when that is the reason for our obedience, uh, good fruit is the result. Good fruit. Uh, 
Good fruit is amazing. The good fruit that comes from living in obedience to God's word is just so profound. It is so life-giving. The good fruit is wisdom. Wisdom to do the right thing at the right time in the right way to bring healing and health and life to those who you're loving. The good fruit that God brings into our life is joy, is peace, is gentleness, is self-control, is patience, is temperance, is these amazing attributes that God has himself that he wants to transform and build our lives and, and, and make us look with, and move with these same attributes in our lives so that we can have an amazing blessings that he wants to bring in our life. You see, when we obey Jesus, these good fruits come and these good fruits produce godly attributes that cause us to prosper in daily life. Godly attributes that cause us to prosper in daily life. They help us become successful in relationships. Having meaningful and deep relationships with people that we care about. They help us to navigate the petty things that can so easily damage a relationship and make it where you can't be with the ones you love at Christmas because you've allowed petty things to enter in. They give us wisdom to transcend through all that and to rise above all that and to live lives that are thriving to the glory of Jesus Christ. These godly attributes help us become successful not only in relationships but in business, in marriage, in conflict resolution, in handling hardships, And may I say, and may I illustrate, Zacharias and Elizabeth are great examples of this. They faced hardship. They didn't have a child. That's a pretty big deal. They wanted one badly their whole lives. And yet, they are thriving. They didn't fall apart and say, oh, God doesn't love me and my life never works out. And I can't believe it. They've got five kids over here and they've got three kids over here and they just have more kids. They, they don't even, they're not even good to their kids and they have kids. I mean, I can't believe it. They didn't need Prozac and they didn't drill themselves into the ground because they didn't get what they wanted. These godly attributes produced amazing fruit in their life, fruit that could handle the hardships that come in life. This is the work God wants to do in us. This is why we study his word. And this is the fruit of obeying his ways. And it is life-giving and profound. And here, Zacharias and Elizabeth, such great examples. Their lives are thriving. They're happy. They're serving God. They're joyful. They're serving others. And they just, they're, they're modeling this fruit for us. It's amazing. Hey, let's be real. Uh, this has been a tough year, hasn't it? Uh, That's an understatement, right? I mean, this has been a tough year. Let me just be frank. Coronavirus has been a major pain in the butt. Right? I mean, are you you sick of pulling this out every time you walk into a store? Right? I mean, just give me a break. And that's only a small fraction of the hassle it's been. Oh, some have gotten very sick. Some have lost loved ones. Some have lost jobs. Some have... uh, Right, I mean, just horrible things are going on. We're reading of suicide and depression and alcoholism and porn addiction and, and uh, various addictions just skyrocketing right now. It's so important that we 
we keep things in proper perspective. I want you to know coronavirus, yeah, it's been a major pain in the butt, but there is no need for it to dominate our lives. Uh, We can walk through hardship because we are God's people and we can navigate these waters really well. Take precautions, yes, absolutely, take precautions. But live in fear, no way, no way. Uh, God's word working in us to rise way above that. Um, Wednesday mornings, I meet with a group of guys, uh, men's leaders from our men's ministry. I had hoped to launch or relaunch our men's ministry on January 12th and had been praying about that date. I'm not sure it's going to happen uh, with, because of the virus. It might be pushed back further. But all that to say, we've been meeting with, uh, with the men's leaders, uh, just you know, pouring in and building uh, each other up, discipling, that kind of thing. And on Wednesday, one of the guys brought this article from C.S. Lewis to my attention. And a, a great article. Uh, it was written by C.S. Lewis in 1948. Uh, if you think back to 1948, what had just happened in 1948? What had just happened? World War II. And World War II ended how? With an atom bomb being blown up in uh, Hiroshima, right? Uh, and uh, uh, that happened in 1945. So in 1948, we're three years past that, and now the arms race is on. And now Russia has already developed their own nuclear bomb and is doing their own nuclear testing, and all these nations are scrambling to get a nuclear bomb, and we're not happy with the nuclear bomb we have. What are we doing with our nuclear bomb? We're building what? We're building bigger bombs so we can blow up the earth not just one time over, but now two times over. Oh, yeah, well, we can do it three times over. Oh, yeah, well, we can do it. And so that's what's going on in this era, right? And uh, might that be a little daunting? Yeah. And uh, C.S. Lewis writes this article, and it's very applicable for today. By the way, as I read it, I want you to do something. I'm going to read it verbatim, but I want, when I read it, when I read the word atom bomb, I want you to substitute the word coronavirus. And here's what C.S. Lewis says. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are, not out loud though, (laughs) because that'll mess me up. But I love your participation. (laughs) Uh, Let me start over. In one way, we think a great deal too much about the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an age of an atomic, in an atomic age, excuse me? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century, when the plague visited London almost every year. Or to live as you would have lived in the Viking Age, when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any given night. Or to live as you are already living in an age of cancer, or in an age of syphilis. I didn't write it, by the way. Uh, And an age of paralysis, and an age of air raids, and an age of railway accidents, or an age of automobile accidents. In other words, do not let us exaggerate the newness of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death long before the atomic bomb was invented. 
and a quite high percentage of us are going to die in unpleasant ways. We had one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, and we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself is not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made. The first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a game of darts, and may it not find us huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about atomic bombs. They may break our bodies. A mere microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. Isn't that profound? Coronavirus, yeah, it's a pain in the butt. But we need not let it dominate our lives. Take precautions? Absolutely. Live in fear? No way. Why? For we belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And He is sovereign over all things. And uh, may we not lose sight. May we not isolate ourselves. May we not get so living in fear that we're not able to embrace and celebrate and walk in all of the good things God has for us that our lives might be filled with gratitude and we might be about our Father's business. He goes on, he says, John, I remember your prayer. You're going to have a son. And uh, uh, I love that Zacharias and Elizabeth excuse me, I said John, Zacharias, you're going to have a son, his name's going to be John. I love that Zacharias and Elizabeth had risen above their hardships, and we need to be the same way. And look what now the angel Gabriel promises to Zacharias. Uh, you might want to get a pen out, because the angel is going to reveal seven amazing prophecies about John the Baptist's life. Uh, and uh, we'll go through them really quickly. You can just number them in your Bible. Number one, um, verse 14. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Yeah, it's going to be an incredible birth. That's not number one, by the way. It's going to be an incredible birth. You're, you're going to, I mean, you're going to be the talk of the town, man. An 80-year-old giving birth to a son. Uh, people are going to be rejoicing and flipping out. Uh, uh, verse 15, here's the first prophecy. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Wow, what an amazing prophecy. And as I read that this week, oh, I can't tell you how it ministered to my heart. Think about it. It is possible for a mere man to be great in the eyes of the Lord. And the potential of that just thrilled my heart. I texted JC. I said, JC, check out this verse, man. It is possible for a man to be great in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus shows that John the Baptist fulfilled this passage, right? That fulfilled this prophecy. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, of men born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. He was great in the eyes of the Lord. 
And how amazing that we have the privilege, we have the possibility of living a life that God would say, well done, good and faithful servant, great job. I mean, amazing. May it thrill us. May it thrill us. Here's something cool, by the way. Jesus said, of men born of women, none greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John. Here's what that means. Uh, as great as a man as John was, and he was the greatest prophet of all prophets, according to Jesus. Jesus says, in heaven, even the least is more righteous than him, because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Wow, can you imagine our, our inheritance? Uh, just how great it is. That's the first prophecy. Be great in the eyes of the Lord. Number two, he will drink neither wine nor strong drink, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Very interesting. Very interesting in the Bible. Here's what he's saying. He's going to have a spirit-led life all the days of his life. From his womb, he's going to be spirit-led. My hand's going to be upon him. I'm going to be leading, guiding, and directing him. I'm going to use his life powerfully. Very interesting in the Bible that it often compares and contrast and puts in juxtaposition alcohol and the Holy Spirit. No doubt the passage here is referring to a Nazarite vow uh, that comes from Numbers chapter 6 when someone could say, hey, I'm going to set myself apart to God. I'm not going to drink any alcohol, no wine, uh, so severe, that you know, so in, intent from the heart, not even grapes, right? Just a total separation from the things of the world uh, no alcohol, no getting drunk, because I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Why does the Bible often juxtapose alcohol and the Holy Spirit? Why? Even in the New Testament, multiple times, uh, but one I'll bring to your attention, Ephesians. Do not be unwise. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why does it put those two together? Why in Ephesians doesn't it just say, don't be unwise, understand God's will, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the instruction. But it doesn't say that. It says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Here's why. Because alcohol is a counterfeit Holy Spirit. It's a counterfeit how so? Well, alcohol will do many of the exact same things the Holy Spirit will do in your life. Well, great. Let's raise a glass. Not so fast. Not so fast. <laughs> alcohol will do many of the same things that the Holy Spirit will do in your life with very different ends. Let me illustrate. You could be having a really hard day. And you're down, you're discouraged, and you can come and find comfort in a bottle. The Holy Spirit will bring the same comfort. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is a comforter. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll send the comforter to you to comfort you when you need comfort. The Holy Spirit will give you boldness to speak things that you normally wouldn't speak. Alcohol will do the exact same thing. Hey, baby. What's well, a pretty thing like you doing in a place like this? Normally, you're a shy nerd, and here you are, suave. 
how'd that happen? Alcohol. Alcohol will cause you to do things that you would normally never think of doing. Holy Spirit will do the exact same thing. Difference? Alcohol, all to destruction. Holy Spirit, all to edification. You wake up the next morning after you've been... By the way, they call alcohol what? Spirits. Do-do-do-do. <laughs> It's a counterfeit spirit. The world doesn't even know it, but it is. It's a counterfeit spirit, a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. And here's what it says. Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to destruction. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, which leads to amazing edification. The Holy Spirit will come upon you when you're in a difficult relationship with someone you really love and it'll give you words to speak that you normally wouldn't speak and it'll heal that marriage. It'll heal that relationship. The Holy Spirit will give you a boldness to share your faith with someone you normally wouldn't do and it'll save that person's life. I got to pray with a guy after first service this morning, God just working in his life. I came up and started talking and I just know the Holy Spirit was in that conversation. Wow. It'll give you an all to edification instead of the destruction. And here's what he says. He's going to be a man led by, not by wine. He's going to be a man led by the Holy Spirit. Far better spirit, by the way. Far better spirit. You can choose. Uh, God will not wrestle you. Uh, Choose where you get your comfort. Be wise. Verse 16. uh, Third prophecy. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Uh, what's that prophecy mean? He's going to be a prophet. He's going to turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now remember, he's the forerunner of the Messiah, and he's saying he's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, that's to Jesus, their God. He's calling Jesus God, Gabriel is here. Uh, Number four, verse 17. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will go before him. Who's the him? Jesus. Well, more more accurately here, it's the Lord their God. The personal pronoun him is referring to the Lord their God in the the sentence right, right before it. And it's calling Jesus once again God. The forerunner of the Messiah is the forerunner of God. Uh which is awesome to consider. He's going to go before him. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one that we looked at in Isaiah 40 when we started the message, right? Uh, The fifth prophecy, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. What does that mean? Let me hear you. What do you think think that means? Get your wheels turning. What does that mean? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. What does that mean? Does it mean he'll make dads really love their kids? They're going to be good dads? Well, that does happen when you follow Jesus, but that's not what this means. Here's what he's saying. He's going to take the heart of the patriarchs and give it to the children of Israel. What's that? He's going to take the heart of David, a man after God's own heart, and give it to the children of Israel. He's going to make them have that same kind of heart. Wow. Wow, how amazing. What amazing prophecies this John the Baptist is going to do, right? Uh, Number six, he's going to take the disobedient and bring them to the wisdom of the just. He's going to go to the prostitutes and to the drug dealers and to the drug addicts. And he's going to take them, uh, those who are disobedient, and bring them to the wisdom of the just. 
And number seven, he's going to make a people, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Remember that Isaiah passage? The road is people. And he's going to make the road straight before the Messiah. He's going to make the path straight. Amazing. Amazing. These are awesome things that he's going to do here. And uh, just awesome to see. I have a question for you. Uh, What do you want for Christmas? What do you want? Because I hope what happened to me, I can make happen to you. I hope the heart, of the, the heart of the patriarchs can be given to us today that we might say, Lord, if John the Baptist can do those things, then what? Then I can do those things. That my life might be great in your eyes, Lord. That I might live a life really pleasing to you. That I might be used, Lord, to turn the hearts of, of, the, of your people back to you. That I, Lord, wouldn't be filled with strong drink, but I'd be filled with your Holy Spirit. That I, Lord, would be used to make ready and to help people see and enter into a relationship with the Messiah. What do you want for Christmas? Oh, I pray your Christmas list might change today uh, because real prosperity in life does not come from all the trinkets and materialism and the newest things that we can get. Real prosperity in life comes from knowing and obeying Jesus and being used by him in powerful ways like this right here. And I know the enemy likes to keep us so focused on worldly things that we get so preoccupied uh, by all the things of the world that we don't even have time to really ponder and seek all that God has created for us. But look at what God has in store for John and all that we could only see what he has in store for us. Look at the abundant grace that God has upon Zacharias and Elizabeth. You're going to have a son. He's going to be a mighty man of God. He's going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to lead Israel to Jesus. I mean, Zechariah is just blown away at God's incredible grace. He's so good. And I want you to know something, church. If you only knew all that God had planned for you, you would flip your taco. You would just go, no way. And what happens is we get so busy in all the stuff of the world, we think we want, what do you want for Christmas? What are you really seeking in life? And what you're asking for in Christmas, will it really satisfy? Will it really do anything? Oh, may we come to God, the giver of gifts. Isn't it amazing that we celebrate Christmas the way that we do? uh, With putting lights on our houses, giving gifts to each other, showing each other love. Oh, what a beautiful thing. But may it not be about the real gift and what there really is and the purposes of, of, of what real life really is. Zacharias is blown away by the magnitude of God's grace. Let's see if we can wrap things up in this next passage right here. Verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. I mean, uh, Gabriel, no offense, but I mean, we haven't had a good night in a long time. How in the world is this going to happen? My wife is well advanced in years. How in the world is this going to happen? Verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I'm going to paraphrase. Dude, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you 
to bring you these glad tidings of God's grace upon your life. What do you mean how? Did you rub my lap? Did you bring me here? Did you? I mean like, are you serious? I'm, <laughs> Jasmine, uh, uh, I mean, he's like, this just incredible, right? And I want you to know something. Look what he says. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you these glad tidings of God's grace upon your life. God wants to speak to you about all the good things he wants to bring into your life. If God was going to speak to you today, if an angel was going to show up in your room, I mean, it would be awesome. I would love it. But here's what he would talk about. He would talk about his plans for you and all that he has for you, and you would be every bit as blown away as Zacharias and Elizabeth. Are you tracking with me? Uh, That's who he is. Uh, Verse 20, but behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. Remember, this is a prayer service going on right now. And the priest would go inside and light the incense and pray in the temple because only he could go in there. And all the people would be praying outside of the temple, uh, you know, waiting for him to come back out. And the prayer meeting was over when the priest came out, right? So they're all in prayer. And those incense going up are the prayers of the saints. And again, beautiful imagery. And uh, so they're waiting outside. They're waiting for Zacharias. And they marvel that he's lingering so long. It's the longest prayer meeting in the world in their mind. Verse 22. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned to them. And he remained speechless. Yeah, I can see him there. He's like playing charades. Two words. (laughs) Holy, you know, angel. I don't know what he's doing, right? He's he's flapping this out for them, right? And uh, verse 24. uh, No, I'm sorry, 23. So it was. As soon as the days of his service were completed, he departed to his own house. Uh... We'd be prone to just skip through that verse really quick, but it's saying something powerful if you take note. If you were a priest and you were 80 years old and Gabriel showed up to you and said, dude, you're going to have a son. Your wife's going to conceive and he's going to be an amazing prophet of God. What would you do? I'd say, I'm out of here. Ah. Get the Barry White music bumping, turn on Spotify, baby, I'm coming home, right? I mean, that's what you, that's what you would think Zacharias would do, right? Look what he does. He finishes, okay, now I'm embarrassed I said that. Uh, uh, he finishes, look what it says, verse 20, please get me out of this. So it was, as soon as his days of service were completed, in other words, he finishes his seven-day um, uh, assignment in the temple and then goes home. I love that kind of faithfulness. And here we see the kind of man that God uses, the kind of woman that God uses, right? He just finishes the service. Now, verse 24. Now, after those days were completed, his temple service, after it was completed, sure enough, uh, Elizabeth conceives. And she hid herself for five months. Uh, I, I bet she did. I mean, you know, 70-year-old woman pregnant. Uh, she hides herself uh, five months saying, uh, Thus the Lord 
Thus the Lord has dealt with me. So, so generously, in other words, so graciously, just blowing my socks off. Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he took away, excuse me, in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And uh, we'll stop here for today. Uh, Zacharias uh, just blown away. Elizabeth just blown away. And Zacharias unable to speak. Interesting. Interesting. Unable to speak. Perhaps, and I'm quite sure, a blessing in disguise. Zacharias, I'm going to make you quiet for a little bit. You see, I'm giving you a a son. I'm answering your prayers. I'm doing exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or hope. Not only is this a son, he's going to be a prophet. He's going to be a mighty man of God. He's going to do incredible things. Zacharias, I want you to think about this for a little bit. I want you to slow down. And God often calls us to slow down. To slow down. To listen instead of talk. To pray. To study our Bibles. To think. To ponder. To meditate on what He's doing in our life. To align ourselves up to His will so that we can actually allow it to happen in our life. You see, God doesn't force His will upon us. He invites us to us, invites us to it, and He often calls us to slow down. Here, God directs Zacharias to Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, back in uh, verse 17, when he gives him that passage there, he says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Do you know what he's doing? He's coming back to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, to the very last verse of the Old Testament, the very last words of the Old Testament, and he's saying, listen, listen, this was prophesied, and God hasn't spoken 400 years, but he's going to speak again now, and he's going to speak through your son, and I'm calling you to raise him Now get in tune with what I'm doing. God often calls us to slow down so that we might align ourselves to His will. And, uh, oh, may I ask you, is it happening? Are you slowing down? God chose Zacharias to raise John the Baptist. Now slow down and ponder it. Maybe this pandemic is causing you to slow down a bit. Are you doing it? And let me ask you, if you are, are you slowing down to the right things? Or has your Netflix usage just gone through the roof? What are you slowing down for? Oh, I pray, oh, I hope that we would want the right things for Christmas and that we would slow down for some Bible study. Slow down to spend time in prayer. Slow down to have some family dinners together. Slow down to have some family game nights again. Slow down to really build some relationships. Slow down to have a family Bible study with our kids, Dad, and uh, make it fun, man. Get the ice cream out. Uh, Put your your fun uh, father game dad on, face on, and just have fun with your kids as you teach them the Bible. Slow down to some great, great things that God has for us. Do you see what God is doing here? 
I'm going to ask Kyle and the team to come back up so we can go out in song. But do you see what God is doing here? God tells Zacharias and Elizabeth, hey, slow down. Going to have you not speak for a little while. He restores his speech, by the way, after the child is born and after he names him John. He gives him his voice back. But he's slowing him down to meditate, to get in tune with what God's doing. And he's doing a second thing. God is bringing all attention to the Messiah. Do you see it? He's bringing all attention to the Messiah. And he's using social media, if you will, to do it. Think about it. There's this guy in the temple, and the prayer service goes really long. He comes out, and he can't speak. Well, that would be a talk of the town. And then, at 80 years old, he gets his wife pregnant. And now you've got a pregnant 80-year-old cruising around. That would be the talk of the town. And people would be saying, Hey, it's been 400 years. Silent year period. 400 years since we've heard from God. But rumor is, Gabriel appeared to Zacharias. And she got pregnant. And rumor is, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. That means the Messiah is at hand. He's coming at any time. And God, using social media, using all of these things to draw all of our attention to the Messiah. And may I remind you, 2,000 years later, he's doing the same thing as we put lights on our house and as we give gifts to each other. May we not miss the message. Amen? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.